Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, Galen Weston has taken years to build up the Loblaw and PC brands, and it's taken a nosedive in the last couple of months. We'll speak with marketing expert Joanne McNeish, Associate Professor of Marketing with Toronto Metropolitan University, about the impact the controversies are having. The already frosty relations between Canada and China are not thawing with the new COVID testing regulation on travellers from China that's now in effect. And we'll talk with Ontario Senator Kim Pate about the ripple effects in the courts after the Supreme Court of Canada ruled last year that consecutive sentences amounted to cruel and unusual punishment. I'm Shona Thompson filling in for Bill, and the Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. One of the least popular Canadians right now actually seems to be Galen Weston, the president of Loblaw. There have been lots of questions about food prices and grocery store profits, so much so that a month ago the CEOs of grocery stores were called to the Standing Committee on Agriculture and Agri-Food to explain exactly what's going on. Now, Galen Weston didn't appear himself. He sent somebody else. But he also had this announcement late last year. I know food prices are top of mind these days. They just keep going up. Your grocery bill is higher because it costs manufacturers way more to produce products than it has in decades. That's clearly no comfort when you're worried about your own food bill. So, to help hit the brakes on food inflation, we're freezing the price of all no-name products until January 31st. Well, there have been some posts showing that the cost of some no-name items, like diced tomatoes, have been going up anyway, and January 31st is coming pretty quickly. There's also been a lot of social media buzz about a posting showing the cost of five boneless, skinless chicken breasts at almost $40. To give us a little more insight on this and what all of it is doing to the brand is Joanne McNeish, Associate Professor of Marketing with Toronto Metropolitan University. Good morning. Good morning, Shona. Uh, that's that's a lot to happen in a couple of months. And actually, I didn't put everything in there. Yes, it, it, it's, it's a really interesting story. But I, I wonder, can we start with Galen Weston himself? Because he's an interesting example of what what I might call a celebrity brand. And 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 Galen right now is the um, the representation of everyone's anger, frustration, uh, with, uh, you know, coming out of COVID, fingers crossed, we hope, uh, recessions, uh, uh, problems getting things that we wanted to have, things don't work, snowstorms, basically, he's responsible in, in, in a way for all of it. Um, but we shouldn't worry too, too much. I don't think about his personal brand. Celebrities know that for a while you'll be riding high. And if we look back five years ago, he was getting lots of accolades for what he was doing at Loblaws, the progress he's making, the progr- pro- um, products he's introducing, and on the industry side, the efficiencies that he's building in the system. Because 10 years ago, they were struggling with some financial issues. So he knows that this is going to be a moment in time when he is going to, his brand is going to take a bit of a hit. But if you'll notice, he didn't respond the last time to the issue around private label, uh, freezing private label prices. And we can come back to that in a second. And he's not going to respond to this particular issue. And by the way, the chicken was a special specialty brand, organic uh, free range uh, a list of uh, uh, ingredients. And as many people pointed out, you didn't need to buy that particular brand of chicken. There were alternatives available. But it was, again, that great representation. When you want to get buzz on social media, you pick an extreme example. Well, but 
you know, to the point as well, the PC free from brand, and you would only see it if you looked in very tiny little print on one side, those four little letters. Um, Usually the PC free from brand is well marked. So this was marked differently. So, you know, maybe some people couldn't realize that this was a specialty, um, a high end kind of product. Right, and and I'm not defending the price point, although I'm always struggling in these circumstances now because I have some sympathy for grocery stores. I started to puzzle about this uh, a few months ago when all of a sudden this group of companies who literally were some of the few that remained open, if we remember those early panicky days of uh, COVID, They were the few organizations that stayed open. They had to put in place all kinds of COVID protections, hired security guards, keep their supply chain running, keep their employees working. Um, And we were giving, we were standing uh, along with the healthcare workers, uh, applauding their efforts as frontline workers. And it's as if we've so forgotten that or we're so angry at them. And again, the target appears to be the large corporate entity of Loblaws. But why this aggression toward grocery stores? Part of the reason is there's a huge group of the population that has never seen prices rise so quickly, has never seen store shelves be empty, has never seen a situation when things don't work properly. And this will be a bit of a shock to to the group of people. And, and it's about uh, the 1990s. It's the last time when we've seen this kind of disarray uh, in the uh, our, our ability to move easily in our lives. But why grocery stores is the thing that I keep puzzling about. Because, well, by the way, the key... Oh, sorry. No, you, I, I might suggest that at a time when we are paying for you know, much higher prices, as you pointed out, inflation. And some people haven't seen this kind of inflation in their lives. But, you know, you get high inflation and then you see that they're making money. Um, Until the last month or so, Loblaw's um, stock was going up. It has taken a minor hit, about 2.5% in the last month or so. But, you know, I mean, it's it's tough to reconcile that when I'm, I'm feeling the squeeze of being able to be able to provide food for my family and and yet the grocery store is making record profits. That uh, well, that's that's a tough sell for a lot of people. Except that why do we, why are we targeting uh, grocery stores when in fact Amazon and Walmart are the bigger and more important competitors to Loblaws or Western Foods? So why why not target other retail organizations? Grocery stores have very small profit margins. None of his profit comes from food. It comes from the drugstore, it comes from the bank, and it comes from the clothing that he sells, and all the other odds and sods items, the laundry basket, the pots and pans. Food, selling grocery food, uh, grocery store food, is a really tough business. The margin at the best of time is one to 2%. And at this point, with the list of problems in the supply chain. So one of the things I noticed that all the experts throw out the word supply chain, and just to be clear what a supply chain is, it starts with the ingredients that go into the product in the movement of the goods from China to Canada or Austria to China or the US to Canada. Uh, The war in Russia impacts energy prices 
and there's no backup in the system. So I think some of your listeners have been to Pearson Airport and, you know, Pearson Airport says get there two to three hours in advance. And that's because there may be problems. Sometimes we get there and we go right through and we say, oh, well, why did we come so early? The thing with the supply chain, that movement of the goods through the supply chain, there's no raw ingredients or they can't get the raw ingredients. There's no slack in the system. If the box, because there wasn't an employee to put it on the ship, misses the ship, it doesn't get here for several months. So it's as if all our foods and goods, particularly for grocery stores, because we don't grow that much in Canada anymore. And we don't, in some of our, there's a few products that we're renowned for, but most of our food stuffs come from uh, other countries. Um, It's as if all that food tried to arrive at Pearson Airport with 10 minutes to spare, and it's just not possible anymore. So when he says, we have these problems. Grocery stores in particular have serious problems with very little profit margin. So his profit came from all the other goods, not from the food. And and if I may caution people, this situation is going to get worse for a while because the system itself now is completely broken. All the normal ways that it used to work, the countries, China, for example, many of these countries depended heavily on China, is also not functioning very efficiently in the way it used to. Um, so I think that we're, I think I'm fairly targeting uh, grocery stores when we should be including Walmart and Costco and Amazon in the mix. And by the way, those companies are quietly going along collecting a much higher uh, profit margin than Loblaws is uh, and or grocery stores in general. Because uh, as, Lo- as Loblaws tried to, ex- or they didn't explain, but Metro said, we all freeze prices coming into the Christmas holidays, and those price freezes come off right in January. So again, the commentators made a big play while well, he's removed the price freeze. Yes, that's very typical. That's what they normally do. They do it before Christmas and take it off in January. We're speaking with with Joanne McNeish, who's an associate professor of marketing with Toronto Metropolitan University. Let's get back to the boss as the brand uh, conversation that we started with this morning. Um, You know, I think we're seeing that, you know, in the problems and the bumpy road that uh, Galen Weston has been navigating for the last couple of weeks and months, um, that can be a problem when you have somebody who is the individual is so associated with the brand itself. Um, There's also a problem when you have uh, the person who is the brand in terms of successorship, because if you build up this big brand with, you know, the CEO as the brand itself, um, you can run into problems with successorship and somebody trying to step into those shoes. Yes, although this is a very unusual company. Uh, Normally, what we see is the company is built by one person. uh, The second generation um, uh, doesn't do much and the third generation destroys. Galen Weston is actually the third generation of this company. And each of the generations has built on the success of the previous generation. It was Galen Weston's father who hired as president Dave uh, Nichols. And and some of your listeners may remember him. Most importantly, what they'll remember is the cookie that he introduced to the company. So President's Joint uh, Decadent Chocolate Chip Cookie was the beginning of this very powerful President's Choice brand. And President's Choice brand is a premium brand. It's it's made to be uh, cost more. So unlike other companies where succession is an issue, 
so far this company has has uh, operated differently than what we would have expected as i said normally by now he would be off sailing ships he's a he is a fully functioning at his desk every day face of the brand now he's a face of the brand the way his uh, previous uh, father and grandfather were not but dave nichols as previous as a president um in the 80s and 90s he was very much a face of the brand um so it's not unusual for loblaws to have someone who's a very strong face of the brand but also to effectively transition to the new generation and galen's relatively young so he still has time to groom the next generation but they've chosen at times to have the family as the face of the brand at other times to allow other people but they have effectively kept a very tight ownership around who represents the brand uh, I wanted to finish off though because we I'm sorry we only have a couple of minutes left. Yeah. But I wanted to finish off really quickly with um something that you had said earlier on in this conversation uh that uh, Galen hasn't said too much about any of the controversies that seem to have erupted on social media. Uh do you think that this is going to ride its way out and if not how does somebody rebuild their reputation? So I think he's done a re- a very very good job. So often I'll say there's no crisis management. This is a case where here's a team with a very strong crisis manage- management approach. They'll be following store visits, they'll be following stock price, they'll be following returns, they'll be following uh, social media, evaluating the impact of short-term impact of this on the brand and their expectation will be uh downward trends and then a slow upward trend and for a company with a strong crisis management brand there it's there's nothing wrong with having negative talk uh going on if the a brand name itself is undamaged and crisis management also tells us when you don't have a fundamentally when you haven't done something dishonest or committed fraud um a negative situation is just something to be managed through with but you're 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 following it very very closely they'll expect to see an upturn within the next few weeks and things going back to normal so the benchmark will have been important down and then back up and and stock prices though will be a difficult one because i think we're in for a bit of a rocky situation in 2023 if the analysts are uh to to be um to be believed uh, but i think for everything else he'll 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 go on quite nicely because i think their plan is no these are just slings and arrows no need to respond joanne thank you so much for your time and your expertise i really appreciate it thanks shona joanne mcneish associate professor of marketing with toronto metropolitan university you're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. New travel restrictions are now in place for those flying to Canada from China, Hong Kong and Macau. As of yesterday, passengers coming from that region will need to provide a negative COVID test as cases there soar. And as soon as the requirement was announced, China said there would be retaliation. Here's Karen Rebo with more. Canada is among several nations raising China's ire. Canada announced on the weekend that starting this Thursday, it will require a negative COVID test taken within two days of departure from all airline passengers two years old and up wanting to travel to Canada from mainland China, Hong Kong or Macau. The move comes as China deals with a nationwide surge in COVID infections and concerns it may not be sharing all available data. Foreign Ministry spokesman Mao Ning said today the entry restrictions adopted by 
some countries targeting China are excessive and lack scientific basis. Mao also threatened to take countermeasures based on the principle of reciprocity. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Well, here to offer his insights is Dr. Robert Hewish, Associate Professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, I guess it really was no surprise that China would take exception to the testing requirements. Yeah, I mean, at this point in the game, uh, this isn't so much about a retaliation of public health strategy. It's just a retaliation uh, against anything. There's so much social turmoil going on within China right now that any opportunity that Beijing has to take a swipe at a foreign government, uh, you know, feels good for the leadership. And the hope is to try to once again detract unfairness and blame to other other countries. Uh, it's it's a case right now where the the level of COVID in China is just is is escalating at levels that the government cannot keep up with, uh, either with with testing or actually caring for people. And for a country to to really do a 180 uh, within just a month of having the zero COVID strategy to having the we're giving up on COVID strategy, uh, it's it's caused such turmoil within China that uh, uh, all they can do right now is try to engage in damage control. And if that means threats to other countries like Canada and Italy and the U.S., so be it. That's exactly the song they're going to play. Well, you know, and, and the uh, the quote that Karen Rebo used in her piece, uh, simply unreasonable and lacking in scientific basis. Come on. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, the grounding of that claim is that there's COVID everywhere. So why should China be singled out as having extra screening? Uh, well, you know, there isn't, isn't COVID everywhere. There, there's many places now that are sort of getting the virus to levels where their health systems aren't strained by it. Uh, to the level that we once were. Whereas in China right now, it is uncontrolled. It's pushing that system, uh, which which you know is supposed to cater for over a billion people, to its limits. And the likelihood of people seeking exodus to to get away from the pandemic is is incredibly high. So if COVID is going to come from somewhere. Uh, at the moment, it's probably going to come from from travel uh, out of out of China. So you know that's I think that's the grounding of their logic. As they say, well, you know, there, there, there's evidence of COVID everywhere. Why are you picking on us? Well, that's because until December the seventh, they were saying there wasn't COVID. They had the largest lockdown, the most severe lockdown strategy of any country in the world. Uh, we don't know the accuracy or the efficacy of their vaccines, the accuracy of their testing, mortality data. There's a lot of science that's missing here. Exactly. And and that's that's where, you know, the West and, and Europe and other countries are completely justified in, in putting this, this restriction in. And it's just going to be part of the picture going forward that we can expect to see this sort of you know, bickering response to to policies that impact Beijing in any way. So uh, if, if something is just not to the tune of, of Beijing, there will likely be the continued threats of retaliation. Uh, and, and it's important for, you know, governments like Canada to say, you know, if you're going to retaliate, let's, let, let's bring it on. Let's not uh, pretend to hide behind the, the ire of, uh, of friendship and, uh, you know, decent trade relations. It's, a, it's, it's the last few years we have seen the hostility just increase in Beijing against Canada. And now I think there's a bit more of a, a spine being grown in Ottawa to say that, uh, 
we're, we're not going to stand for any sort of hostility that's uh, that's coming from from Beijing as we once did. We're speaking with Dr. Robert Hewish, who's an associate professor with the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. On the topic of relations between Canada and China, it's been pretty frosty for some time now. Yeah, and I don't see that getting any better anytime soon. Uh, we're now seeing Ottawa talking more about uh, getting things in line to to put more pushback against China if it's if it's about. Uh, uh, you know, restricting the importation of goods that involve forced labor of Uyghurs or, uh, uh, you know, issues that, uh, of, of importing goods that could be sensitive to challenges in Tibet. That's one thing. Uh, you know, supply chains are going to start changing between Canada and China coming up forward. And, you know, this is something that isn't going to be an easy move, especially in a, you know, an economic downturn globally. But it's one that's going to be needed because for for a little too long here we've we've been complacent with uh, with with allowing ourselves to to just sort of go along and put up with some of these behaviors from from Beijing and and say well that'll be fine at least we're you know at least we're trading partners it won't be our uh, our issue but you know Mr. Xi is, has been very very clear that his vision of the world is one where liberal based democracies are not the ones leading the conversations about about you know the future of the world and development uh in his mind uh he would prefer a china-centered community of the common destiny of mankind and that's uh that's something that i don't think uh many democracies around the world are going to agree with no but still they are a behemoth in terms of trade we still do trade with them and a lot of it how do you create a better working relationship with china without capitulation yeah, it's it's going to be a tricky one because where we've seen most of that dependency in the past is on our consumer goods, right? It's you know how how much stuff around us is made in China, and the answer is the overwhelming majority of it. So to really start digging in on this, uh, the the supply chain of especially cheaper goods, the you know the the, the kind of stuff that you would you know from cheap. Uh, uh, cheaper goods you find in dollar stores to, to maybe some household appliances. Until there's a there's a turn away from basic manufacturing in China to other locations, uh, that tension is still going to exist. And uh, we are seeing other markets start to open up to welcome those businesses. So Vietnam has just stepped right up and said, "Hey, look, if you're if you want to produce uh, irons or, or kettles or vacuum cleaners, come to us. We'll we'll happily work with that. And there's a lot of potential, also in Latin America, to start to see uh, those sorts of production facilities opening there as well. So, you know, it's it's not just an overnight shift. We're we're talking about a real cataclysmic move away from a a, a global economic trend that's been deeply seated for the last 30 years. But if uh, if the West is serious about sort of pushing back on the authoritarianism and the humanitarian concerns coming out of China, this is the kind of conversation that needs to happen. Well, further to your point as well, I mean, we've been seeing certainly in the last year or so that Xi Jinping has been doing a lot to shore up his power um, and and to try to push forward his worldview. Yeah, and and the thing is with that, it's it's always shocking uh, when you look at sort of the authoritarian strongmen, the, the, the populist leaders of, of, of today and in the past about just how 
dominant they seem in one moment and then often from a crisis in which they cannot control breaks out just how fragile they are and and how quickly uh, that tune can be replaced and i guess that's the other part of the equation is that as hostility against the government continues to rise in beijing which it is i mean people are posting social media uh in uh, against this covid crisis to a level that the government can't even keep up with with their own censors uh there could be sort of internal moves within the communist party to say we need to reposition our our, our approach to, to leadership now as you said xi jinping has shored up the support within the party to to his his drumbeat and uh you know we're not too sure if there's an opposition to that rising up or if that sort of dissent uh, that is popularly breaking out in China is making any inroads into the party itself. Well, and really quickly, I'm sorry, we're almost out of time here. But, um, you know, Xi Jinping has has shown time and again, he is no uh, stranger and he is not shy about permanently removing people from the playing board if they do try to come up against him. Yeah, that's true. There's There's been a lot of characters who have sort of disappeared and we don't hear about them much more. They've been uh, suddenly had a popular scandal dropped on them and that was the end of their career. But the other caution that, you know, we're at the beginning of 2023 here and, and I hope that by the beginning of 2024, we're not having a conversation about any military aggression from China into Taiwan. And I think as we saw in Russia, when, when these strong men get cornered, and they don't know what to do, uh, uh, outward military aggression is something that's not uh, outside of the, the vocabulary. And uh, we, we've seen as much of anything in China the last year, a lot of positioning and a lot of strategy building to intimidate Taiwan. So I would I would keep our feelers on that, uh, that path as well to see if that's a reaction that Mr. Xi is, uh, is preparing for. Absolutely. It's something we need to look out for. Uh, Dr. Hewish, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Take care now. Robert Hewish is an associate professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A decision by the Supreme Court of Canada last May to strike down the provision for consecutive life sentences with no chance of parole is making its way through the courts. There's a ripple effect that's been going on because of it. In a unanimous decision, the court found as unconstitutional the section of the criminal code that permitted consecutive parole ineligibility periods of 25 years in cases involving multiple first-degree murders. Joining us now is Kim Pate, who is a senator for Ontario, has been since 20. 16. Incidentally, not only does she have a background in criminal law and is a past executive director of the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies, she's also part of the Independent Senators Group, which advocates for a nonpartisan Senate. Good morning, and thank you for joining us, Madam Senator. Oh, just call me Kim, please, Shona. Okay, <laughs> will do. Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, let's start with a little bit of background, because this decision involved the case of Alexandre Bissonnette, who killed six people and seriously injured five others in 2017 in an attack on a mosque in Montreal. That's right. Um, and in this case, uh, in 2011, actually, the government repealed what was referred to as um, colloquially as the, or by most people as the faint hope clause. It was a provision that was brought in when capital punishment um, murder, you know, for murder was taken out of the criminal code in 1976. And in exchange for that, um, the political decision was to increase parole ineligibility for murder from what was then 10 years to 25 years. And uh, and 
basically it means that people who are convicted of murder, whether it's one or or more, uh, are are sentenced to life in prison. And only if they are shown to deserve, you know, whether it's morally uh, because they've re, you know done work to rehabilitate, done processes. Uh, can they apply to the parole board earlier than that to get out? And but nevertheless, they're they're uh, re- supervised and can be returned to jail at any point until they die. In 2011, that faint hope. Uh, and as part of the exchange, one of the agreements was that 25 years is a long time, and uh, police officers, prison guards, uh, people working in the system. I was, you know, I I wasn't yet in the working in the system. I was still in high school then. Uh, but people argued that 25 years was a long time and that there needed to be some possibility of applying earlier. And it was a four-step process that required you to go to the courts, then go uh, to a jury, then go through a two-step process there. And then if and only if you got through those four stages, could you then apply to the parole board for parole before the 25-year mark, after the 15-year mark, but before the 25-year mark. And in 2011, um, the government, the Harper government, repealed that uh, provision. In addition, they uh, allowed for multiple life sentences. The only other place really you see that in the world is the United States, who also still has capital punishment, who still can kill people for for murder. And um, previously, the last time the murder provisions were looked at before Bissonnette by the Supreme Court of Canada, they said that even the life sentence itself might be deemed unconstitutional, as it has been in many European jurisdictions and other parts of the world, if we didn't have the faint hope clause. So in 2011, not only were multiple life sentences introduced, essentially, but also uh, the faint hope clause was repealed. And so the obvious question now, and what Bissonnette didn't deal with, they dealt with multiple life sentences and said that's unconstitutional. But they also left the door open, and what other courts are looking, the courts since then have been looking at is, should we be looking at more than just that provision, because we now have some of the longest prison sentences in the world in Canada. Many people think of us as a more progressive uh, internationally, we're seeing as a human rights defender. And what, um, what the courts are saying is, the Supreme Court of Canada has sent the signal that we've gone off off track, that we're no longer the human rights defenders, and that the importance of rehabilitation as part of protecting public safety has, you know, has essentially been lost. And so we need to go back to that, because the whole purpose of our sentencing provisions is to protect society, but also to try and correct, uh, hence the reason that most uh, jail services are called correctional services. That's the, the idea. So it doesn't mean that anybody would get out who's still a danger to the public if they're deemed to be a danger. And obviously mistakes are made, as we know. Uh, but the reality is the um, what the courts are saying now is we need to rethink this, that in today's Canada, are we actually upholding human rights, moral rights? Um, are we doing the best that we can as a society? And when we look at, in particular, the incarceration rates for Indigenous women, uh, we see that if we were jailing according to public safety, then the people most people in Canada should be most afraid of would be poor, racialized, especially Indigenous women who have experienced physical and sexual abuse, who have post-traumatic stress, who may have developed uh, addiction issues, 
and because that's who we're jailing at the highest rate and that we're putting their kids in care of the state as a result as well. Well, I'm glad you brought up rehabilitation as being one of the cornerstones of what we're supposed to be doing here, because there are some people who would say that there are those who can't be rehabilitated. And in this area, the names Della Millard and Mark Smitch immediately come to mind. Mm -hmm. Well, and in fact, one of the one of the realities is um, that's why the parole board exists. Uh, One of the uh, views is that we should look at people and where they are in their sentences, how they're going, managing. And there are some people who will never get out of prison who are serving life sentences because um, either they they are resistant to or um, they're, you know, for whatever other reason. In some cases, many of them should probably be in psychiatric facilities, not in prisons, in my humble opinion. Uh, but because they they cannot be rendered uh, or they're not believed to be safe to be in the community. Sometimes, as I said, mistakes are made. Um, the parole board is made up of human beings. Um, but we don't seem to question the entire system when we keep seeing reams and reams. In fact, just before this, I was talking to someone about conviction reviews and wrongful convictions. And, um, you know, the, the number of mistakes made in terms of wrongful convictions probably outstrip the number of mistakes made in terms of releasing people. But we don't have the same, um, for understandable reasons, um, we don't have this, but still um, not logical reasons. We don't have the same call out for a, a more stringent review of our criminal legal system when those kinds of wrongful convictions happen or are exposed. We're speaking with Senator for Ontario, Kim Pate, and we're talking about, well, it was last May that the Supreme Court of Canada uh, ruled as unconstitutional um, multiple and consecutive life uh, sentences with no chance of parole for 25 years. That extended the uh, sentences of certain uh, repeat uh, multiple murder uh, convicts to 25 up to 75 years in some cases. Uh, And that was ruled to be unconstitutional because it was cruel and unusual. Uh, The impact of that determination and that order from the Supreme Court is now being felt in other cases that are not murder cases. It's being cited in judges' decisions. That's right. It's being cited in, in part because it's the first time in a long time that the Supreme Court of Canada has stopped and said, Uh, in situations where in Canada we talk about human dignity, where we talk about rehabilitation, if we sentence someone to a provision where there is no hope of them ever being able to show that they have been rehabilitated, then uh, that goes against everything uh, that our law is about. And so that's really what the provision says. It doesn't say that you will get out. I mean, many people have, uh, you know, are trying to use you know, inflame public opinion by saying this means it's a get-out-of-jail uh, free card. It, absolutely not. It's People are still serving life sentences, and that means they are, they are in prison or they are supervised in the community if it's deemed safe to do so. And only if, it's, um, if that's the case are they then permitted to be in the community. And what the, what the Supreme Court of Canada has prompted other judges to look at is to say, when we know, just recently we also had the Auditor General do a review, um, as well as many, many reports from the correctional investigators showing how often the law is broken within our prison systems by correctional authorities. And the fact that um, the treatment that people receive often in prison really significantly reduces their life expectancy 
And so if someone has no hope of ever getting out of prison, then that goes flies in the face of this idea that people can be rehabilitated. And so um, people can still spend their entire lives in prison if they're never deemed to have been rehabilitated. But this also opens up the fact that um, very long punitive sentences have shown to have absolutely no impact on crime rates, no impact on rehabilitation, no impact on deterring other people. Because in fact, if you ask the average person how long someone spends in prison for any offense, most people have no idea. And so what this is really trying to get at is, do we want a system that focuses on protecting society? Yes. And is rehabilitation part of the way we protect society? Absolutely. Because the last thing we want is what we've increasingly been doing, particularly for uh, some of the poorest, racialized, especially Indigenous women, is having them in prison. In fact, just before the holidays, I was in Edmonton, and I was meeting with all of the women in the maximum security unit were Indigenous. And one of them, uh, two of them actually, were due to be released. Now, they were going straight from a maximum security setting into the community, in large part because of risk assessment tools that characterize them as dangerous and violent, even though uh, when they get into the community, many of those same women are never dangerous or violent in those circumstances, and it's part of the reason the courts have also said our whole assessment process is um, you know, is fundamentally discriminatory, particularly on the basis of race, gender, ability, and, um, and particularly w when you're looking at people with mental health issues. So there are many, many things we need to be changing, but one of the really positive steps as a result of the Bissonnette decision is many judges are now looking and saying, okay, what, is, what are the rehabilitative components here? Uh, just throwing someone in prison and then releasing them potentially with more problems than they went into prison, more mental health issues, is not going to assist public safety at all. We need to focus on public safety, including through the lens of rehabilitation. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the issue of uh, general deterrence because, you know, I've, I've covered a number of uh, high-profile murder trials as a reporter, um, and nowhere <laughs> did anybody ever uh, argue that uh, this would deter others from a similar crime because if it's a crime of passion, if it's something that's been premeditated, Deterrence is not a factor in either of those situations. No, you're absolutely right. And in fact, most people um, in the moment do things that if they ever thought them through, probably wouldn't have done them. If they knew the consequences, probably wouldn't have done them. Or they were so inebriated um, as a result of drugs or alcohol uh, that they, they weren't you know, thinking through a process they might otherwise do. So uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, in, in fact... Uh, the government's own research shows that general deterrence is is really um, very close to mythology in the sense that um, very few people do things thinking through what the end result will be, and that if that were the case, then you know presumably we'd be have we'd have well not just us but the United States would be the safest place in the world because they have the longest most punitive sentences and we're very close on the heels. And so often, uh, those who are convicted of first-degree murder are in their early 20s, and the part of the brain that processes consequence doesn't fully develop until your mid-20s, and in some cases, later on. That's absolutely right. That's, it's actually 
I, I trained as a teacher before law school, and one of the things that struck me when I started working with young people in the system, and then, of course, as they aged, older people, uh, was the fact that so many of those young people, not only did they not have that cognitive development, but they often also had learning disabilities, had other challenges that further, um, you know, made it difficult for them to process. And um, and now some of the research coming out on brain injury as a result of, uh, you know, all the research that you were talking about, the, the junior uh, hockey championship just before this. And uh, or sorry, it was on the on the radio just be on your radio before this. And one of the things that the sports injury research has shown is uh, as a result of concussions that can injure uh, brain development as well. And we know that there are many, many people in prison. In fact, 91% of the Indigenous women, 87% of them overall, who have his, uh, histories of physical abuse. And uh, now the research is coming out that the brain injury could also interfere with that kind of brain development. So I think there is much we don't know. What we do know is that what we're doing has not been effective in addressing the very root issues. And so there are many things we have to do in the community as well to assist folks so that uh, we don't end up with mostly just the poor, the racialized, and not necessarily the people who cause the greatest harm being dealt with by our criminal legal system. We'll have to leave uh, this discussion there for today, but a very interesting discussion. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much and hope you all have a wonderful um, new year and uh, all the best to uh, your health and happiness to you and yours. We've been in conversation with Senator for Ontario, Kim Pate. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.